Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. This is the second part of my chat with Dr. Paul Sellers, stroke consultant at Southmead Hospital in Bristol. And this one is very much focused on thrombectomy and how it differs from thrombolysis. However, as I mentioned last episode, there was a significant update in this field with the publication of the new National Clinical Guideline for Stroke. And so about half an hour into this episode, the original episode ends and Paul and I jump into another conversation with a few specific updates on the new guidelines. By and large, the whole episode still gives a decent overview of thrombectomy and hyperacute stroke. And finally, the Buy Me A Coffee legends this week are Luke, who found out he just passed, who donated some coffee. Thank you, Luke. Joe, who got their third time lucky. Congratulations, Joe. Thank you to Jeff who also bought a few coffees, and Alessia, who passed first time. But this episode dedication has to go to Jess, who donated some coffees despite telling us that she didn't pass this time, so she's in it for the long haul. Well, Jess, thank you so much for your donation. Sending you my very, very best wishes for your next attempt, and you're not the first, you definitely won't be the last, and I will be here for you every step of the way. So, Paul, moving on to our, it seems like we've spoken a lot already on thrombolysis. We're going to move on to thrombectomy, which is a, a relatively, or certainly is a newer uh, therapy, which is becoming more uh, prevalent through the UK in the treatment of acute ischemic stroke. So maybe you can give us the basics of thrombectomy, how it differs in the reperfusion therapy for patients with hyperacute strokes. Yeah. So I guess the first thing to say is it's absolutely incredible. And it's an absolute joy to work in a centre where this happens because it is a magical treatment. And even just saying this, every time I speak on this, I get goosebumps on my arms. I I wonder when that will ever stop because it it can be absolutely life-changing. And therefore, it is really important for the medical reg to know about this treatment because it, it works really well. 
you know, when I look at my medicines, you know, when I'm prescribing my aspirin with a, you know, an absolute risk reduction of 1% and a, you know, number needed to treat of 100, and I'm looking at that and thinking, that's thrombectomy, it is a number needed to treat of around three, you know, a 30% absolute risk reduction. It is whopping, it is brilliant. And I guess one of the things that we'll come on to with the criteria is these are not the small strokes. These are the people with the strokes, big motorway obstruction, big large vessel occlusion that are profoundly disabled, you know, with a five to 10% chance of functional independence long-term. You know, these are the big, bad, horrid strokes that we now have a treatment that works really well. You know, when we compare it to thrombolysis, that if you just ignore the actual outcomes in terms of functional stuff, you know, you've got a sort of 10 to 20% recanalization with thrombolysis in the large vessel occlusion. But with thrombectomy, you know, we almost always get it out, not always, but almost always get it out. And the, the functional change can be absolutely profound. It is incredible. I won't keep going on about that. But just, you know, if anybody wants to do stroke, it is something to make you want to do stroke. It is incredible to watch. So I guess the things to know first are who is eligible, what the criteria are for it. Then it's thinking about what service you have locally and what you may or may not need to do within that service. And I'll try and be as broad as possible without being too local specific about these things. I guess right at the end, Sam, it may just be worth saying that a number of things that I'm about to say are currently very controversial, not controversial, they're standard. (laughs) They're not controversial. They are being debated currently and may change over time. So this podcast may become out of date in the next few years because the the, the stuff is changing very rapidly with a number of these things. So the first thing is that it needs to be a stroke, obviously, um, and it needs to not be a hemorrhagic stroke. So we're talking about ischemic stroke and we're talking about large vessel occlusion. So we're talking about carotid artery, intracranial carotid, where our biggest evidence is. We're talking about middle cerebral artery. And even in that, we're just really mainly talking about M1, but we also do do M2s. And that depends how bad things are about whether you go for those. And we're talking about basilar. We're not routinely talking about vertebral. We're not talking about posterior circulation artery. We're not talking about anterior circulation artery. I'm not saying they aren't done on occasion, but when we're talking about sort of strict referral criteria, we want either intracranial carotid, middle cerebral artery, or basilar. That is your large vessel occlusion. So to prove that, you can't have a plain CT. So it absolutely makes me tear my hair out when we get a referral. We all wake up ready to go for this thrombectomy about to happen and it's just a plain CT with a hyperdense vessel. That's not enough. We need to actually demonstrate the vessel is blocked and we need to put contrast into the body to be able to demonstrate that. So they need to have had a CTA. A number of hospitals have problems with getting CTAs out of hours. It depends what your thrombectomy service is, whether it's 24 hours or whether it's an 8 till 8 or 5 to uh, 8 till 5 or whatever about whether that is definitely indicated at night. And we'll talk about, about that in a second but you need to have that at some point before you're making the referral. 
The other thing, unfortunately, or in my opinion, unfortunately, is the MRS. So all our thrombolysis trials are all in people who were very good. So then that MRS zero to two category, we have expanded that where we now thrombolize the majority of people. But with thrombectomy, we have a difficult service to get. And therefore, it is rationed and our evidence is very clear. We only have evidence that this really works in the MRS category of zero to two. So it's again about just knowing that category of disability and knowing where two and three sits because they're very subtle changes. So they need to be good and independent. Any age can be 100 and an MRS of two, but you know there's no age cut off because we've got quite good evidence that the older patients do benefit just as much as long as they are functionally independent at the time of presentation. Your NIHSS needs to be slightly more. We've got slightly different trials saying with slightly different cutoffs, but nice have put us with a nice round number of six. So we've got needs to be a stroke, large vessel occlusion, MRS of two, and an NIHSS of six and above. They're the main bits that you need. And that will take you up to about six hours. So from onset of stroke to six hours, all you need is the CT and CTA and those criteria, and you're good to go as long as it looks favourable. If the timing goes past six hours, or in some centres past 12 hours, we're then talking about penumbra. And as we've said, some people, when that clot hits, you get a big area of brain that dies fairly quickly. Some people have lots of collaterals that are managed to get loads of blood around those different arteries, those different A roads, and they can keep that penumbra alive sometimes for days. And they can keep a very large penumbra. So they've got symptoms of a stroke. They look like a big tax, but they are the brain is still functioning. So they've got electrical failure of those cells, but they've got enough blood to be able to perfuse the brain that it's kept alive. And that flow criteria, that difference between flow of electrical failure and cell death is, is, you know, it's a small difference between the two. So we need to be able to work out who those patients are. As I said, in the 0-6 hours, it's very rare that we would have that huge core. So as long as there is no big stroke on CT, i.e., We've got the timings wrong. That's all you need. Past six hours, you often need more advanced imaging. And where the evidence comes from is there was a Dawn Diffuse trial that looked at either MRI perfusion or CT perfusion to work out. And essentially, I won't go into the details of that because it's not relevant for medical reg. Very fascinating. But essentially, it's talking about have you got enough flow to the brain in that area past the clot for your brain to survive. If you do and you've got salvageable brain, we should probably take the clot out. And that's what it comes down to. In a lot of centres, there is evidence that we don't necessarily need that imaging up to 12 hours. We've got trials that show we can do it with plain CTs up to 12 hours. So in our centre, we'll take people up to 12 hours as long as the imaging looks favourable without advanced imaging. But past the 12 hours, you often do need it, although that is one of the controversies we should speak about later on. So just to recap, you need a stroke, you need large vessel occlusion demonstrated on CTA, you need your plain CT to check there's no big stroke damage, 
up to six hours, that's all you need, as long as your MRS is two and your NIHSS is out six. And then after six hours, you will either need to do it in-house if it's that sort of center where you do CT perfusion, or if it's a sort of satellite area, you may need to send those to the thrombectomy center to get the CT perfusion to be able to work out whether it is a viable procedure to do. Yeah, I guess my, my question was, is the CT perfusion something you're able to perform at your base center if you're not in a tertiary center and then it can be uh, somehow processed at the tertiary center or is it something, is it required to be a whole new run of imaging? Uh, so if you're doing CT with contrast, it's just phases. So essentially they just take lots of pictures as the contrast goes in and we can work out flow and how long it takes to get there and volume by all of those measures. It's a very clever test. Um, so theoretically, any center could do it, even your small little DGH, as long as they can do a CTA, CTA and the ability to take lots of CT images, they could do it. The problem is, is the analysis of it and sending all of those images over. So lots of places use software. So all the trials use software as well, Rapid being the main one, uh, which will work it out for you and tell you whether there's a number or not. A lot of centers don't. Our center doesn't. So we don't know where does the CT perfusion. We bring all theoretically possible ones based on the CT, CTA over to do the CTP to make the final decision. But that is very variable across the country. Lots of places, yes, you would do the CTP at the referring unit and then make the decision from that point. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a whole set of new CTs. I guess the main thing for the listeners will be that overnight what responsibility would you have to try and arrange additional imaging unless you're a stroke registrar overnight something you're probably not familiar enough with to ask specifically for overnight no so i get it it should be in a guideline so your hospital should have that that guideline and protocol so some centers will do the ctp it's automated software and if it looks viable then they will be referred into the the tertiary center for thrombectomy some it's just all potential ones i.e under 24 hours with all the things that we've just mentioned would then be referred i guess it is important at this point thinking about well actually what the practical what do i actually have to do as a medical reg to work this out so we've just get all the information as we've just mentioned but the scans it's slightly tricky depending on whether you have a 24-hour service or not. So, for example, a large vessel occlusion, really we want to know that that's still occluded up to the point of referral. So if your centre is working 9 till 5, you will probably need that CTA. So anyone who is theoretically possible for having a large vessel occlusion, which is essentially any stroke with an NIHSS of over six in a 24-hour window should probably get a CT and has an MRS of two or less, should get a CTA early in the morning. So a couple of hours, giving them time to report it before your centre opens. So that would be the normal thing if you don't have a 24-hour service available in your referring hospital is you probably want a repeat CT if it's been more than four hours since your first CT to check about whether there's a lot of damage there at the time, but at the same time a CTA right before your referral centre opens, especially if they've been thrombolized, because thrombolysis does work. It does actually, you know, it does sometimes get rid of the clot. So uh, it's not always still present when we repeat the CTA. If it's 24 hours, you just get it all done at the time of doing the CT 
that presentation when people come in. And again, it depends which centre you work in with how much you have to discuss that and who you have to discuss it with. We've managed to get a protocol which streamlines that. So any serious possibility of a stroke would get a CT and CTA as long as they're not clearly MRS of four or five. But some centres you may need to then discuss the CTA with the on-call radiologist or telemedicine or whatever hospital you have. And I guess it's just making sure you direct that energy so you do it when it's needed, which is not at the time of presentation unless you've got a 24-hour service. It's before you're referring, not at the point of presentation. Really important for our listeners to be dialed in as to what is locally available because that will drastically change the urgency and necessity of performing your imaging. So really important. And obviously, it's something which we can't cover in totality in this episode of the podcast. And Paul, one thing you just mentioned there, which I think is just really important to touch on is the fact that you can you can do both. You can thrombolize and perform thrombectomy as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's what the evidence would suggest us to be doing. There is some early trials coming out of China that showed no difference between straight to thrombectomy versus thrombolize and thrombectomy. Um, but absolutely. And there's a number of reasons that makes sense as well. So one is not all thrombectomy is successful. You know, various anatomy problems, blockages on the way that we can't get the clot cause a problem. And if you've not given thrombolysis, you've missed that chance. Secondly, there's a theory that when you grab that clot, so it's sort of like a little wire catcher, the stent that sort of pulls out the clot is that you cause a lot of distal embolization with that procedure and that the thrombolysis washing around in your system could theoretically be beneficial for that so until we've got evidence that says we should be doing it differently the evidence so far points us towards the fact that we should be thrombolizing and doing thrombectomy in all cases even if you are presenting to a thrombectomy center a lot of the messages that was was just said there are quite I've tried to say it in quite absolute terms to make it clear, but it's worth just mentioning at the end that this evidence is just changing so fast. And so the MRS problem, so there is definite starting to be increasing evidence that it does benefit people with higher MRS scores. And should we be commissioning to be able to do thrombectomy on people with higher MRS scores? There's also a recent meta-analysis that's just come out that looks at those people where the CT scan, so we didn't really talk about it in detail, but the aspect score is what we use to differentiate how viable a brain is on that plain CT, that actually people with really bad scores or large cores based on CT perfusion, so hardly any penumbra, could still actually benefit from thrombectomy. That's been a massive I mean, it's sort of changed my world. That only came out last month. So there's these people who we would have previously been refusing, who we might may now have to start thinking about taking. And then there's also the whether you actually need this advanced imaging or not. It's amazing that we're debating that because there was loads of trials at the beginning which showed that we did. But now we're starting to get better at this and sort of knowing now what to look for on the CTs and sort of looking back. There is sort of a shift that some people don't feel that advanced imaging is necessary that actually it's just delaying what you need to do quickly and especially if you compare that with the evidence that i've just mentioned about the potentially unsalvageable brain actually showing benefit you can start to marry those two together that we may not be doing ctps or uh, mri perfusions in the future so all of those three 
cutoffs that we just mentioned may change dramatically over the next few years or may not. We may need more information before we make that decision. Yeah, really important and obviously a uh, occupational hazard of producing a podcast which is prone to such large swings in evidence base. But I'm sure all the listeners will appreciate that obviously medicine's evolving all the time. And everything that we talk about is subject to change depending on evolving evidence, which is one of the beauties of uh, of, of modern medicine. <laughs> but Paul, there's one last thing I wanted to talk about before we finish. So we finished on uh, we finished on thrombectomy, but I really want to talk about posterior circulation strokes just to finish off because I think it's a challenging diagnosis to make clinically. And any advice you have on either clues from the history or examination findings, which can improve our confidence in making a positive diagnosis of a posterior circulation stroke we'd be really grateful for if you have any advice for us on on posterior strokes oh it's really tricky this one i'm i'm a bit scared to say this on a on a national podcast but it was all those things in medical school that you learn that posterior strokes is never vertigo it's never a posterior stroke if it's vertigo alone without any other neurology that's rubbish the unconscious patient is never a stroke. That That's also not true. And it's all this tricky posterior stuff, isn't it? So I guess, so let's talk about the bad one first, the big bad basilar. That can present just with posterior neurology. But I guess the ones where it tends to get missed is the unconscious, lots of seizures happening. No one understands really why they're unconscious, why they're seizing. Is it just postictal or they keep having another seizure? Let's scan the brain, nothing found, but actually there was a big hyperdense vessel that someone missed. That's not uncommonly seen. So I guess it's just having that air of suspicion in the person who you can't explain the seizures, you don't know why they're not waking up, and thinking about could it be the basilar, thinking about gaze, looking at gaze. So if it's seizures, your gaze deviation should go towards the seizure. So especially if it started on one side, your eyes should go towards it if it's a stroke tends to be the other way. So just thinking about sort of gaze palsies and things within those people and just trying to work out whether there's anything else that's making you more suspicious that this is more than a seizure and a low threshold to get a CTA if there's suspicion because they're also very difficult to work out in terms of everything we just mentioned was all about anterior strokes and actually getting CT perfusion and MRI perfusion isn't evidence-based in Basler plots so it's about trying to pick them up as early as we can and trying to get rid of them because the outcome for them is just horrific so i guess that's the first thing but i'm not sure that's actually what you were hoping for sam i think you were talking about the vertigo patient weren't you i think that's that's where that's where you want to go um (laughs) okay so i guess the main bits i'd say is one, think about your patient and their characteristics. Obviously, stroke can happen in young patients, but it's not common. And the more risk factors you have, the higher the chance that this vertigo that is happening to this patient is more likely to be a stroke. So I got told this many moons ago, but it's this is, please don't requote this statistic, but just to give you a sort of idea, the vertigo, isolated vertigo with more than four risk factors, I think it was, carried a sort of pre-test probability of around 30 or 40% of it being a stroke. You know, there's some things like that, that, you know, if you have tons of risk factors, strokes definitely got to be on your mind for that vertigo. And I guess what we're talking here is not the episodic, clearly BPPV. We're talking about, is this a vestibular failure or vestibular neuronitis, or is it a stroke? 
The other thing, which is actually more sensitive than the MRI in the first 24, 48 hours, is the HINTS test. I would strongly recommend YouTubing this. It's very difficult to explain over a podcast to be able to uh, tell you about it. But essentially, it's a battery of three tests. The most important one of that being the head thrust, where you're essentially looking for their eyes. So as you twist someone's head, they should be able to fix on a point on your face if you do it. And as you flick their head to the side, their eyes follow their head rather than fixing on your face. That points strongly towards ear problems rather than stroke. And if you've got that, you're fairly, you don't even need the MRI at that point because it is a very sensitive and specific mark for vestibular problems. The problem is, is when that test is negative, that's when you start running into problems. The other part of those tests uh, is a cover test. So that's covering one eye and seeing if you've got a skew underneath the eye that you cover. So you're not looking at the the eye you're not covering. You're looking at the eye you're about to uncover and it's been looking off somewhere else, which again can point towards stroke rather than vestibular problems. And then the last one that's commonly misinterpreted is bidirectional nystagmus. So I think it's just really important that we get tons of referrals for this. That's not nystagmus on both gazes. So if you put your finger to your left and then the right and there's nystagmus on both of those gazes, that's not bidirectional nystagmus. What we're looking at is the fast phase of the nystagmus. So if you can have nystagmus on both sides, but as long as that flick is happening on the nystagmus in the same direction in both gazes, that's unidirectional nystagmus. If as you cross over, you notice that the flick goes the other way of the eyes, that's bidirectional nystagmus. So I think definitely worth thinking about. The other, all the other bits are, they're a bit hocus pocus. And, you know, there's people who talk about the intensity, the onset. There's lots of other things. And again, I guess we're talking purely here about isolated vertigo. So if it's got neurology, then it's a stroke until proven otherwise, but the isolated vertigo. I think there is some things in the overall picture in those other bits that you can look at, but I think the most evidence-based and clearly defensible thing in terms of stroke that you miss because you <laughs> used some other wishy-washy evidence is the HINTS test. You know, it's got a nice, clear evidence base that if you can prove that it's vestibular, that's your job done. And I would say that would be my only clear advice i think anything else starts to become about just clinical weighing up and someone who's seen a lot of vertigo yeah fantastic and i i I appreciate it's a really difficult thing to to try and tackle and i i mean i'm nowhere near mastering it and you know it's reassuring to to me to hear that you as a as a consultant in stroke medicine still it's still a difficult thing to try and suss out absolutely and i don't think I don't think that's something to be embarrassed about. It's a potentially really serious thing versus potentially not a very serious thing. It's a really important diagnosis and being nervous about it, I think, is a very healthy thing. And that's that's why we're here, isn't it? That's why you have a stroke team. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. So, Paul, I think, well, we're pretty much finished. Is there any final closing comments you want to make about anything to do with hyperacute stroke treatment, anything we've discussed? No, I, th- I, th- I think we've... We've we've covered most of it, haven't we? I guess it's just knowing knowing your service, and I think just the practical things of being a stroke reg is it's just it's just like it used to be with hearts. I remember knowing with the, the hospitals you're in, whether you're in a thrombolysis centre and you had to deal with that, or whether they had chance for stents and all of that and interventional procedures. 
You just need to know what your local service offers and then work out the times and then using all the information we've just discussed, you should be able to navigate what is getting increasingly overcomplicated when actually I think the basic message is, is fairly simple. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Paul, we're extremely grateful for you giving up some more time to enlighten us on the difficulties and the trials, tribulations, pitfalls of stroke medicine. So Dr. Paul Sellers, stroke consultant at Southmead Hospital in Bristol. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Pre-Paces podcast. Absolute pleasure, Sam. Thank you for inviting me. And listeners, it's at this point that Paul got back in touch with me saying that we absolutely had to cover the update for the National Clinical Guideline for Stroke. I also just wanted to say that Paul has been an absolute legend for coming back on the podcast to cover these clinical updates. He's been brilliantly enthusiastic. It's clear that he absolutely loves stroke medicine and I hope this podcast has maybe inspired some of you to take an interest in this fascinating and rapidly evolving space. It's not all just rehab it's hyperacute, it's life-changing, and it's truly the sharp end of medicine. Without further ado, let's jump into that conversation where I needlessly introduce Paul for a third time. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast. And today, as is an occupational hazard of uh, producing a podcast which uh, is dependent <laughs> on evolving evidence on a national scale, uh, we're welcoming back a- another returning guest, uh, it's Dr. Paul Sellers from uh, North Bristol NHS Trust, consultant in stroke medicine, uh, to give us an update on the new national clinical guidelines for stroke. And this is off the back of our uh, episode, which we recorded on calling stroke avatar hours just before uh, these guidelines were came out. Unfortunately, as I say, it's an occupational hazard that guidelines are constantly evolving. But we're so grateful for Paul to come back and uh, give us another update on the new stroke guidelines. So, Paul, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, well, thank you ever so much for having me back, Sam. It's uh, it's good that we're, we're making sure we're trying to keep it as relevant as possible. But probably by the time you publish this one, it will also be out of date with fast <laughs> moving uh, evidence base. But thank you very much just for clarifying a few issues. Yeah. No problem at all, Paul. And just for our listeners, we will most certainly put a link to the new uh, National Clinical Guideline for Stroke in the show notes of this podcast, because the last time that the clinical guidelines were uh, updated, or the last recommendation uh, guidelines were in the were in 2016, there have been a significant number of changes of the 538 recommendations made in the guideline almost 300 have been changed in some form so there are significant changes but thankfully you'll be pleased to hear we're not going to touch base on every single one of those but we are going to give you the broad brushstrokes of the update and how it will affect us as medical regis and referring clinicians to a tertiary center stroke service So, Paul, I wonder if we can just start off by uh, having a discussion or maybe you can tell us why do the guidelines uh, need updating at this point? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I mean, as you said, I I strongly recommend having a flick through those guidelines, although lengthly, they are fantastic and very comprehensive, but also laying sort of very black and white terms what we're doing. And I guess stroke medicine from 2014-15 when those RCP guidelines have been patched over by NICE on a number of years as the evidence is 
moving forwards and new things are coming out and throughout all countries throughout the world boundaries are being pushed things are changing and especially I mean thrombectomy was still very much in its infancy just that time frame ago and you know we were still talking about should we be doing thrombectomy at, at, at that point and now thrombectomy is something that a lot of people know about and almost year on year we're we're changing how we select patients who it's going to benefit relaxing some areas tightening others just trying to find who these people are that we're going to benefit from doing this procedure and as as you mentioned in the just in the quick chat we, we had before this sam i mean it is worth just fully emphasizing what a dramatic thing this can be for people. I mean, it is just magical watching those symptoms melt away. They wake up from the GA and they just are like new people for a lot of a lot a lot of cases. And I think this people are pushing this evidence because we can see what a massive difference it's making for people. And we want to make sure that we're doing it for as many people as possible at any time of day, night, and trying to be as inclusive as we can and making sure that everyone who could benefit is going to benefit from this. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost as monumental a discovery or uh, evolution in evidence as primary PCI probably was for the STEMI generation. Had to put that in as a budding cardiologist. (laughs) But Paul, so if we jump into the uh, recommendations from the guidelines, what are the the broad brushstrokes that the key uh, take home messages, and then maybe we can go into uh, those in individual detail. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess the the main headline of the of the new guidance that's changed since they came out was was in a reaction to well, essentially two trials that were published in I think March or April this year before we did the recording, and then um, the, the guidance sort of came straight after that, which which essentially outlines that these very large strokes where the CT looks awful may still benefit from thrombectomy. And I think to explain why that is, I might have to do a little history tutorial to go into some of the detail of all of that. But I guess that's the the main take-home message that you see that patient, they've got an awful stroke, you look at the scan and your heart sinks because you think, oh my God, it looks terrible. But actually, what we're doing now is pushing that boundary of saying even that terrible scan person could still benefit from thrombectomy. And I guess that's the big take home. The other big thing is highlighting that posterior strokes are still very much changing from even just a couple of years ago where we had no evidence and then some evidence, but not the evidence we expected and then that's now also sort of starting to change to sort of narrow down exactly who is going to benefit from thrombectomy and posterior strokes. And it's it's been a big surprise, to be honest, about what we thought we knew or thought we would, would assume is not what is the case. And that's essentially that we thought all basilars deserved a thrombectomy at any time of day with any stroke symptoms. And that's turning out not to be the case. Brilliant. And and. One thing I think we should emphasise maybe before listeners uh, strap in for <laughs> what we have to tell them is that the vast majority of, of the chat that we had in our previous episode of calling Stroke Out of Hours is still uh, relevant. We're not going to go through all of that in its entirety, but we are just going to touch on a few of the, the newer developments. And 
as Paul said, the majority of the recommendations have that are notable have been made on the thrombectomy side of things, but there there is some new developments on the thrombolysis side as well, and particularly with uh, wake-up strokes, Paul. So I wonder if we can talk about that first um, and talk about thrombolysis in wake-up strokes. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's much else to add from what we were saying before, to be honest, Sam. So it's, it's more that it's not necessarily that the... Um, the evidence is new with the thrombolysis. It's just that it's all being condensed into one place so you can readily see what criteria are used for thrombolizing patients, wake up sort of time frame. And that's using various bits of evidence of eligible patients and trying to think how can we pick out what is a new stroke that you've woken up from. And that is universally you can't do it with a CT, CTA. You need the advanced imaging, and that's either with the MRIs. I think we di- I think we discussed in the last one CT perfusion as adjuncts to your normal CT, CTA to be able to pick out those people. And and essentially what they're doing is picking out people who have a very small core infarction or MRI evidence that it's a brand new stroke. And those are the people that you can target with thrombolysis safely without that increased risk of bleeding. So there's nothing necessarily new, but just there is now a nice resource that lays it out for you what those criteria are. But it doesn't change the message that we were saying before that all of that is very much a daytime criteria. So something maybe to highlight if it's fresh overnight to the stroke team in the morning, but it it all involves advanced imaging, which for a lot of hospitals won't be available overnight. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that pretty much does mirror what we discussed in the last episode. So then moving on to the uh, thrombectomy uh, recommendations or the formalization of, of thrombectomy recommendations, Paul, what, what does this guideline tell us or formalize for us that wasn't there before in the thrombectomy space? So um, I don't know, for me, it's it, they came as a bit of a surprise, actually, because whilst there was evolving evidence about who we could expand this to, those were also caveated with restricting the populations who may benefit from that, or certainly in an evidence base. And I think the important message here is not to forget the the old evidence where other populations of patients were included and it was still shown to be effective. And what I mean by that, especially speaking as a geriatrician, is that those patients who are MRS2, which is our normal cutoff for thrombectomy, i.e. living independently, could live alone for a week without any help. So still a, a very you know, fit older person were very much included in the thrombectomy guidelines of of the past. The new thrombectomy guidelines actually restrict that for a lot of the indications to MRS zero to one. So that's one of the the more restrictive elements. And I'll talk a bit more about that, about why that is. But what it has done is now expanded the scan findings and the severity of stroke which thrombectomy can show big improvement for. And I forget what who it was. It was one of the, 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 the trial leads in one of these trials. You know, he called it atom smashing. And I think that's quite a nice, a nice, a nice term for it because it's, you know, all those people. We, the, the sort of rate of thrombectomy from all strokes that present into hospital is around 15%. We can, we, can, we can go with thrombectomy. But there's a large proportion where they have evidence of that 
large vessel occlusion, but we just can't because the brain looks dead. And one of the big changes is using a lot of the evidence that's come out this year that's actually saying, although it looks dead, as long as you can show that there's something, it's still going to improve that patient's outlook if you take it out. And it's sort of moving away from that fatalistic attitude towards stroke, you know, the big tax, the big hemorrhage, oh, they're done for, look at the scan, it's too late, and moving towards, well, actually, is there something? Is there a slither of something that we can help with? Is there a little bit of brain tissue that's still not yet infarcted? And if there is, then we should we should try and remove that clot. And now we have evidence that that does improve in a surprising fashion how well people do. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. And in the context of our listeners who are going to be medical regs, again, it probably wouldn't change much that you're able to do on call apart from letting the stroke team know about that sooner. Or is is it a case of early earlier escalation to a tertiary centre out of hours if you think that, I guess, because there's not much we would be able to do unless we have a, a radiology report, which is somewhat equivocal, possibly? Yeah, well, I guess it does change a little bit on the ground. It depends It depends on your, your background and your specialism. I know for a lot of people, it's very much about the report says there's a big artery clot and the scan says the stroke's not too bad, so refer, or maybe even less than that, just showing there is a big clot and this person has symptoms of a big stroke, therefore refer to the thrombectomy centre. I think although that's what some people do, and certainly, you know, I don't I don't want to... Uh, gastroenterology came into my head as the first person to pay by, you know, nothing against gastroenterologists, but, you know, <laughs> they, they have a very complex thing in a different area. <laughs> but, um, you know, the gastroenterology reg may, may very much just be big clot, refer to stroke centre, you know, and that is the, the, the passing on. There's a lot of other people, though, who really do want to sort of understand these decisions and are also wanting to independently assess whether that referral is appropriate or not and and you know I think we should be empowering registrars to make some of those clinical decisions and I guess the big change here is that those scans that don't look good and it looks like a completed infarct may still benefit from referral to a tertiary center whereas before the more sensible and tuned in uh, registrar who you know enjoys a bit of stroke learning or whatever may have said do you know what that that looks too far gone there's no point in referring this even though there was a large vessel occlusion and I guess that's the big message to take home is just because your scan looks bad you still need to get some advice because it's more complicated than that now yeah and would you would you advise that even if the report wherever it's from even if that indicates that there's no I, I guess that if, if they don't have CC perfusion they wouldn't be able to tell if there's viable brain tissue there well well this is it Sam. so I do you know what I think Sam what I need to do can I take you through my history lesson because I think and, 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 okay, and, yeah, and I know I it. know it's I know but I think it's it's really vital to sort of understand because the answer to that is is no not necessarily anymore so people who we may have done CT perfusion for now maybe that's just a waste of time and and actually, as long as the timing and everything else looks right, 
there probably is brain to save, so we should just crack on and do it, is the, is the, the answer of that in a nutshell. But I think, as I say, just sort of understanding where this has come from, and I think sort of probably will echo some of the things that we were saying before, just sort of might make this a bit clearer, so I can sort of define exactly what I mean. So I guess we start off, we start off back in 2014-15, where thrombectomy, in its beginning, beginning sense, and there we had a very time-based criteria. So we had... A stroke happened, showed a large vessel occlusion in the anterior circulation. It was under six hours, which is longer than our thrombolysis. That's all the imaging you need. You should probably proceed to thrombectomy. And the only thing that excluded patients were what's called an aspect score. And the aspect score is essentially looking on a plain CT, how much of it looks just frankly dead. So when you start seeing those hypodensities, you start seeing that darkening shadow the, the teaching, you know, that's dead brain. An aspect score is starts off at 10, the brain split into different areas. And as you see those ischemia, those ischemic areas, you start subtracting one for each one of those areas. And once you get down to about five in those early ones, it was thought, oh, you must be a really fast progressor. That will be our only exclusion. So an aspects of five, even if under six hours, wouldn't have proceeded to thrombectomy in the early days. So that was that was where we started with. Then we started saying, well, actually, is there a better way of picking out these patients who have uh, strokes, especially in the extended time frame? So now let's stop just looking at plain CTs and CTAs. Let's look at CT perfusion. Let's look at MRI perfusion. And then we can tell those people who have that still that same criteria so we're still looking for a small core so that small area of actual dead tissue and looking for this penumbra so this is that that bit where we've got the blood flow coming down you get electrical failure you get symptoms but the cells are still alive and then as that flow goes down you reach a threshold where the cells die and that happens instantly and that's the core is where they die the penumbra is where we've got electrical failure which cannot be maintained and so the CT perfusion and MRI looked at that and they said, okay, well, if you've got a small core and you've got this area of penumbra, we should take the clot out and that we can extend that time frame. And Dawn and Diffuse did that and they showed very well. In fact, their, their absolute risk reduction was actually better than the, the under six hours one when you actually look at the, the benefit that they had. But what they're all looking for is small stroke, as in big symptoms, big area of brain affected but small stroke and all of their exclusions once that core started getting over a certain volume you were then not included in that study and there were a number of reasons for that one is you could argue that once that core starts getting to a certain size that trying to take a clot out at that stage would not really benefit you because there's only some brain that's left and certainly I don't think Many thrombectomy centers saw it as quite so black and white. It was sometimes about the area that was still alive. If that was your speech area or that was a significant area of movement, although the core might be quite big, if we can try and save that one area that would make a real big functional difference, we would. So it, it wasn't quite as black and white. But there was also the risk of bleeding. So if you've got a big core tissue, you've got a blockage there, and then you suddenly take that blockage out, blood spills up to that dead area of brain the architecture's lost you're going to cause a big hemorrhage 
So that's where we were. That was sort of 2018, 2019. Can't quite remember when that, that those two trials came out. They came out in the same year, sort of as groundbreaking as the ones that have just come out more recently. And so that's where we sat for a number of years. And it was very formulaic, very easy. So not to six hours. Sometimes people push that to 12. You just need your CT, CTA, do your aspects. You can work out who you're going to do. And then past 12 hours or past six hours, you need advanced imaging just to show that the stroke was small, but the area of vulnerable brain was big. Easy peasy. But then there were a number of trials that started to leak through what if our stroke was big? What does pulling that clot? Ha- what does it? What happens if we pull out that clot? Is there as much of a risk? And the early trials, sort of through 2020, 2021, started to show actually with these big strokes, if we pull out that plug, so these people with very low aspect scores or big core on CT perfusion, we pull out that plug. We're not actually seeing the level of bleeding that we were expecting to see. So maybe this is safe to do. And as soon as it starts becoming safe to do, people start to say, well, actually, is there any benefit to that? And then in 2023, as I say, just just after we recorded <laughs> the last the last uh, the last thing, there were there were two trials, one from China and one from America, both multi-center trials that answered this exact question. So they were big strokes with a big core, and so if you look at their CT, even the non-stroke doctor because i think sometimes people think we're making it up a little bit when we say oh yeah there's clearly a stroke there and they're like no that just looks like normal brain to me but you know that that sort of trained eye to the stroke but even even to the non-stroke doctor these strokes can look terrible on the scan there's big areas of you know hypodensity that look like a big stroke so they were taking these patients these were taking these ones that before we would have not touched with thrombectomy because it was you know, it was futile. It was just risk, no benefit. And what they showed in both of those trials was not only was the hemorrhage risk. So this was our first sort of RCTs. Not only was the hemorrhage risk not much more, they found increased evidence of non-symptomatic hemorrhage, but not symptomatic hemorrhage. But also that these patients did way better than you would have imagined from their scan. So while we were seeing in the early thrombectomy um, trials, we were seeing sort of absolute risk reductions of um, sort of 20 to 30 percent. These are a bit more modest in the sort of five to 15 ish sort of absolute risk reduction, which is about your same for your thrombolysis. So still a very good absolute risk reduction. Here we're talking an absolute risk reduction of good outcome, which is defined in these trials by our MRS of zero to two, i.e. an independent person. So we're taking these people who have this awful prognosis of a big tax. We're then saying that we can take that historical of five to 10% people reaching independence and we can increase that now by another five to 10%, even though the scan looks awful. And this, I mean, it is game changing because now... The CT perfusion, I mean, we still do do it after the 12 hours, but all we're looking for is a bit of penumbra to save. So we're no longer worried about the big core. We're no longer worried about that, oh, it's too late, it's too far gone. We're saying, is there anything left? Is there a slither of something that will benefit from reperfusing it? If so, it's probably safe. And if so, we should probably try and save it. And that's the, the main difference. Now, the only problem with this, 
as I mentioned before, those two trials took very fit and healthy patients. So they did theoretically include over 80s, but the representation of those and actually the criteria for those were, were different and the representation was small. But we've now restricted. So whilst we're looking at much more bigger strokes, we've now taken away that MRS2. So now before when thrombectomy was for MRS0 to 2, we're now MRS0 to 1. So we're now excluding those people. And I mean, the, 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 I mean, in some ways, it's quibbling over tiny things, because actually, your difference between MRS 2 and 1, so you have to be entirely independent, not dependent on anyone else to achieve an MRS of 2. To get an MRS of 1, you've got some impairment, but it's not restricting any of your sort of day-to-day tasks like hobbies or jobs and things like that. And that's actually very hard to prove in an older person. So the difference between a 1 and a 2 in an older person is actually almost sometimes, you know, you can't tell between one and two. But it's a bit of a worry because, for me anyway, as a geriatrician, that we've now saying we can do thrombectomy for so many more people. The prediction is that this is going to take us from 15% conversion rate to thrombectomy to around sort of 20, 25%, so much more people eligible. But we're now just excluding those people who are a little bit more dependent And I think it's just worth bearing in mind that old evidence of the dawn diffuse where we were looking for small core. So we were looking for a small area of actual dead brain, but big penumbra did include those MRS of zero to two, and we should still be considering those. Wow, Paul, what a run through. What a history lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Need a little jingle at the end. Absolutely loved it. End of class. We need to ring a bell. Yeah. Now, Paul, the big, okay, so as a, as a non-stroke trainee, the big takeaway I've got from that is we're looking at a CT scan, not with that, as you said, not with that fatalistic view, but with an optimistic view of, is there anything to be spared? And if anything, it would mean we would have a lower threshold to consider referring on, uh, even if we see a big core, but there is some penumbra, which we're not clear on on the scan, whether or not there is but it would still be beneficial to contact the tertiary centre if in doubt. Absolutely. So I guess, as I said, it's just trying to take away that fatalistic thing, big stroke on the scan, clot in a main vessel, contact someone because we could maybe be able to do something for this this person still. And that, and that is completely different than 2022, we wouldn't have taken those people. 2023, we are. Uh, the other thing, and I'm not sure if you, you answered this question already, the, the the imaging required to determine whether or not there is a small sliver of penumbra, is that done on, on the aspect score if it's an anterior circulation stroke? Or can that be done in a DGH to make that distinction between small penumbra and large core? So unfortunately, no, you still need the advanced imaging to be able to work out that penumbra. But I guess the, the shift that this has caused is... As now in the guidelines, it said between zero and 12 hours, all you need now is simple imaging. And I guess the reason for that is they're saying that it's very unlikely that there isn't going to be some penumbra in that zero to 12 hours. Whereas before we may have considered CT perfusion in those people. Now, even if the scan looks bad, they're in the zero to 12 hour mark. You just need the simple imaging. We still do need some advanced imaging or Probably we do. I mean, the actual trials didn't necessarily, (laughs) but 
the guidance suggests that we still need to show that there's something salvageable there, which the DGH would, unless it's set up to do that, would not be able to do without the CT perfusion or the MRI perfusion. Yeah, fantastic. And and Paul, if I can try and put you on the spot here. So we're talking about a very subtle differentiation between our modified ranking one and twos. What do you think would be the best questions for our listeners to ask to try, if if they can, to distinguish between a, a one and a two? Okay, well, I, I th- I'm I'm going to change the question actually slightly there, Sam. And I think <laughs> the better question is knowing who's MRS three because on no protocol were they eligible, and that may change in the future because none of our thrombolysis evidence exists really in the MRS three to four, but that wouldn't stop us thrombolizing someone. So maybe that will be the future of thrombectomy. But currently the biggest question is differentiating your threes and twos. And the biggest question I think that would help is if you were left on your own for a week or two without any family, friends or neighbors, could you survive? You know, can you wash, dress, do your bills, do your shopping? Can you do all of that? And if you are, then you're MRS too. If you can't do that, you're MRS three. And that's unfortunately, you know, that's quite a, I mean, <laughs> it also made me think that, you know, the more slovenly among us who defer to other people to do other things for us would actually may get themselves into an MRS uh, three, but through just choice and laziness rather than uh, function. But, um, (laughs) but yeah, so that's your biggest differentiator that between the ones and twos, as I said, it's, it's a different, it's, it's have you, so your difference between zero and one is that, is there anything you can't do anymore that you used to do because of, getting older, your previous stroke, your COPD, whatever it is, is there anything that you can't do that you used to be able to? And then you'd be a one. And then getting to a two, the level to which that has impacted on your life. So has it had some minor restriction, i.e. is it just, you know, your job and hobbies, or is it a more significant restriction like your... um, Oh, I can't think of any other example. Like you can't leave the house or something Yeah, like that. well, not being able to leave the house would, again, put you into a three because then you can't really yeah, do your, your shopping and things. So it's they're, they're, quite, they're really quite subtle between one and two. And as I say, in the older population, I, I think it's actually very difficult to tell the difference between an, a, a one and a two. Yeah, yeah. It's very nuanced, isn't it? It's talking about what participate. You know, it's all that discussion about... Um, impairment and disability you know your your what participation you can't do anymore because of that impairment i.e the, the disability here's one for you paul what's the uh, modified ranking scores uh, perspective on delivery shopping <laughs> yeah, I was. I mean, I have always thought about that, but I guess it takes a certain level of ability to be able to go onto the internet to do your internet shopping. And I guess you know we're not trying to catch people out if they if they're able to do that. Then then that's fine. I guess the question there is if you had to say your computer broke or COVID happened and you can't get a delivery slot anymore, could you still out, go out and and do it? Because I have to say, I think I think in general terms, maybe not specifically thinking about 
the modified ranking score, but I just think in terms of general frailty, shopping is a pretty, for, for an elderly person, shopping is a pretty hostile activity to try and do. You know, you've got to get to your nearest shop. You've got to either yeah. pick up a basket or get a trolley. You've got to walk a decent distance around carrying things, pushing or carrying a trolley and basket at the same time, and then uh, pay for it, leave and, and get it all home. So I think it's a, it's a good measure of, of frailty and disability. I mean, we could talk about this for hours because it's, it's a particular area of interest of mine because it's, it's a real challenge because I think we're using the wrong score, if I'm being perfectly honest. I mean, you look at some countries and they're not paying as much attention to this. And I think it's really important to recognize that it's probably, you know, this MRS scale was a, a tool used for trials. It was never meant to try and pick out frailty or anything like that. And I think it's a very blunt tool with some very big jumps and then very subtle jumps between mm-hmm. the different the different levels. And I don't know, I think your MRS3 person who's actually got very little comorbidity but is just limited by a singular problem which has caused impairment is very different from your MRS2 who's got a global pre-frailty, you know, sort of CFS4 or 5 who is a lot more likely to do a lot worse. And, and I guess, why are we even using any of this? And it's, you know, we've just talked about an area of brain that's got a massive hole in it, and you've got to recover from that. And we can increase that environment, you know, that that chance of recovery by trying to save the bits of brain that we can, but you still need to be strong. You need to not be frail. You need to have a good rebound to be able to get better from that and have a good outcome. And I guess that's why it's there but it's, it's probably the wrong tool. And I, I don't think we will use it forever, but while we are using it, and that is the referral criteria, it's, it's important to try and understand it. Paul, one other thing that we mentioned just before we hit the record button is about posterior strokes and thrombectomy. So we need to have a, a at least a surface level uh, dive on posterior strokes and thrombectomy. So what, what were the new, was, was there anything new from the new recommendations or the new guidelines? I guess the tagline is everything you thought you knew about posterior strokes is probably turning out to not be right. So even in the days of, you know, the Hermes trials, when thrombectomy was just starting to kick off, we used to consider the basilar, the basilar occlusions for thrombectomy at quite extended time frames because it was thought of as a like salvage procedure. Um, you know, this has an awful prognosis. We might as well give it a bash. And that's been the tagline for quite a while. And then now we're starting to get evidence that that maybe that's not right. So I think the first thing to say is thrombolysis is a really good choice for basilars if you can get them in the time frames. So actually, when you compare it to anterior strokes, it, it seems to work better. It seems to have less hemorrhagic complications. So works pretty good for basilar occlusions. And I think a lot of the chat about thrombectomy does forget that thrombolysis works you know we have a lot of people arriving to our center in an ambulance and I'm sure the ambulance is part of the recipe for this someone needs to make a study about jiggling people with thrombolysis I swear because the amount of people who come in an ambulance who've been jiggled with thrombolysis and recanalized by the time they've got here is not insignificant you know it's a, a large portion so thrombolysis seems to be good for basilars and then the other big problem with basilars they present in weird and wonderful ways. And it's sometimes very difficult to get a time of onset because they've sort of had these weird prodromes 
and things that didn't sound very stroke and then they're now unconscious and seem to have a gaze deviation and someone's thought oh this could be a basilar stroke and by that point you know is it too late I guess is because you're then talking about sort of significant brainstem involvement so thrombolysis seems to work it tends to present it a bit weird and sometimes the question isn't asked early enough and defining when the time of onset is happened is is difficult and recruitment to a trial is more difficult because it's only about 5 to 10% of our strokes. So we didn't have a lot of evidence until quite recently. So in 2019, there was a trial that was still working back on the, the stuff that we were just talking about in 2014, that within six hours, should you give thrombectomy to someone? And the big shocker of that was, well, actually, not only was it a, not any different thrombolysis, that actually in the minor strokes the ones with an NIHSS of less than 10, they actually seem to do worse rather than better. And so we're suddenly a bit like, oh, we don't really know how to take this. It feels a bit wrong to be even talking in that first six-hour period that maybe thrombectomy isn't as good. And actually, if you've got a minor stroke, you might actually do worse. And people didn't really believe it completely, but a lot of us were like, oh, maybe we haven't got this right. And then there's been two trials that have been released that first showing actual benefits. So there they used up to 12 hours and got rid of these mild, moderate strokes. So now we've got NIHSS of 10. And within 12 hours, we've now shown a definite benefit of thrombectomy. So that's good. We know it does work. But the, I guess the big caveat there is that you need quite big symptomology, which is tricky because of the second point that we've just that, that was made is that these tend to present a bit more insidiously until you're in a coma. So for the person on the ground, it's worth bearing in mind that actually the new guidance stipulate that, that it needs to be in 12 hours, not 24 hours although most thrombectomy centres would consider 24 hours, so that should not be a reason not to refer. But you need a big stroke, so you need an NIHSS over 10, whereas the anterior strokes were six. And this was because of all these, these little things that we saw in those, those earlier trials. So in terms of you on the ground, that patient who's got a basilar thrombus who is talking and has got a minor bit of cerebellar ataxia or whatever, you need to watch like a hawk. And what we don't want it to be is that sort of standard neurosurgical discussion where it's not for transfer, not for transfer, not for transfer, or too far gone, not for transfer. And I think what you need to, the medical reg with that basal clot is that patient is your sickest patient you know, even if they look well. So they've got minor stroke, they might have an NIHSS of six, you've probably spoken to the thrombectomy centre or centre referral, but they will probably refuse. And it's then making sure that any change in their NIHSS is picked up and that needs to be regularly looked at. Because once it starts to affect the brainstem, starts to become bigger, that timing of how long you've got to be able to save that person's brainstem starts to go down. And we've just got to remember that this doesn't seem to be as good as we thought it was going to be compared to the anterior strokes. And also, to, sorry, one of the points I was also to say that actually it's not always as bad as we think it's going to be as well. So I've just said, watch that patient like a hawk. But actually what we're starting to see is that a number of these tip of basilar clots actually do fine. <laughs> you know, they're not, it's not a death sentence as we once thought it was. 
Yeah, interesting. And I've only seen a handful of basilar clots in my time. The ones that I've seen have had awful outcomes. And I guess the one thing that I took away from one of those cases is is the fact that they did present very atypically. In fact, it was more almost a uh, sort of a syncopal history. And the NIHSS score didn't, in the first instance, exceed mm-hmm. 10 for sure. But then they developed evolving hyperacute neurology, or albeit uh, in, in the cranial nerves. And so the, the take-homes are up to 12 hours should be considered if you've got a big basilar or intracranial vertebral clot. Yeah, yeah. So if, you've, if your NIHSS is high enough and you're in the first 12 hours, it's clear cut. If it's after 12 hours, I would still say, even despite the guidelines, you know, they're, they're vague, not saying no, because there's another study that's just come out after they were released that also shows probable benefit in those patients. So I think definitely speak to your, past the 12 hours, speak to your thrombectomy center. But it's the, I guess the one thing that really worries me is don't be, okay, thrombectomy center refused, let's just sit them on a ward, park them up, they'll be fine. They're potentially a disaster. And certainly that patient that you've just described, that rapidly evolving urology is terrifying. You know, if if you're seeing that, I would even if they haven't reached that yeah. threshold of 10, if you're seeing a brainstem start shut down, that's really concerning. And and I guess that's the big message that whilst the guidance has changed, yeah. I'm saying almost yeah. contradictory things that maybe thrombectomy isn't the panacea that we thought it was for these patients, but equally don't just ignore them and sit on them and think that they're fine because we haven't taken them. Yeah, definitely. And I think the uh, the other thing I took I took from that case it's one of the it's one of those things where once you see one, you'll probably never forget it. And definitely, it's one that I remember and keep in the back of my head, especially if there's ever ever any uh, smell of any sort of brainstem uh, infarct. That's it. Yeah. So the unconscious seizing person who was vomiting before and a slight gaze deviation—they're all your sort of clues, aren't they? This could be basilar. And I think just a low threshold for CTAing those those sorts of patients because when it's too late, it's too, it's you know it's 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 horrid. It's one of the worst stories in stroke. It's one of those ones that really pulls your hearts. These can often be quite young people as well, and and they're really tricky to manage in terms of thrombectomy as well because it's especially in the the Asian populations. It's often atherosclerotic, so they sometimes need a stent, and then you suddenly need lots of antiplatelet medications. And they're just a really tricky cohort that I think we thought we had sorted and had just sort of assumed we were doing the right thing that is actually turning out to be far more complicated than the anterior stroke. So watch this space. I'll try not to ring you up and say we need to do an update in a couple of months. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, I think we've covered most of what we wanted to talk about. Is there anything else you think uh, we needed to cover? I uh, I think we've pretty much done it all, haven't we? Yeah, I, th- I think that's it. And and as I say, I'd, I'd also like to plug you, plug you a little bit, Sam, is thank you ever so much for inviting me along. What you're doing here is is fantastic with all the paces teaching, but sort of broadening it out to surviving as a medical reg as well. I mean, what a great project you're doing. So thank you very much for providing this service for everyone. It is, uh, you deserve a massive medal of award by the time you've finished all this. Paul, that is very, very kind of you to say. And uh you know, it's it's guests like you that give up your time to make the 
the show what it is. So uh, without further ado, we'll say a massive thank you to Dr. Paul Sellers, consultant in uh, geriatric medicine and stroke medicine for joining us again on the Pre-Paces podcast. Thanks, Sam. And listeners, that brings us to the end of another show. Don't forget, you can uh, get in touch with us all uh, through our usual social media channels. It's at Pre-Paces podcast on Twitter, or you can reach us through the website. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to go above and beyond and support the show, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. I've been Dr. Sam Williams, and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces podcast. <laughs>